So glad to be with you today. Take your Bibles and join me in the book of James. We're going to be in chapter 4 of James today. We're going to pick it up in verse 10 this morning. And uh, let me just say congratulations. You made it to church today. You're not afraid of a little rain, are you? This is the non-weenie service, okay? Good for you. Amen. All right. I'm excited to get into James uh, for this particular message today. James, if you don't know, if you haven't read a lot of James, this could be a rather uncomfortable, prickly book if you're not accustomed to that. James deals with things that we'd rather not talk about. Uh, how many of you, when you were a kid, your mom made you eat broccoli or asparagus or Brussels sprouts? You know, Now, all of that, we know that's all good for us. Okay, we're better off having eaten it. That doesn't mean it all tastes good going down, right? Well, James can be a little bit like that. By the way, I like all those vegetables, just in case you're wondering. But James is kind of like that. He gives us stuff that is not so much fun going down, but it's good for us. And what we see earlier in the chapter that we're looking at today, in chapter 4, James identifies the human problem. He says, here's why... There are quarrels among you. This is why you're fighting. I've identified the problem. He says, is it not because of the passions that are within you? That's what he says right there. And so he's identified our problem. What is it? It's a sin problem. He has looked under the hood. He has seen what is wrong. And in order to overcome that, we have to become more spiritual, and in our series that we're in, for this is the fourth week of this short little series called In God's Eyes. And we've been looking at different concepts, different words, different ideas that we often have our own definition of, but what we really need is God's definition. And we've looked at the concept of freedom, and we've looked at success, and we've looked at ambition last week. And today we're looking at a Christian concept. We're looking at something very commonly spoken of in church circles, and yet we still hang on to our own definition of it. And it's spirituality. Spirituality. Can you have the wrong definition of a good thing? A godly uh, Christian concept? Yeah, you can go about even those things the wrong way. And so there are different human philosophies on how to be spiritual. We try to achieve spirituality in different ways. Some people try to do it through emotionalism. And they say, here's how you be spiritual. You just go down to that church and you just worship and you just sing your little heart out and you get emotional and you say amen at the right moments and you say hallelujah at the right moments and you shed some tears. That's how you get spiritual. Well, that doesn't work that way. Some say you gotta achieve spirituality by intellectualism, you know, and they say you just gotta listen to the right uh, Bible teacher, you know, and you absorb all of the knowledge that you can, and you get your head packed out with Bible knowledge. Then you'll be spiritual. Well, it doesn't work that way either. Some think you do it through ritual. You know, maybe you've got a church background where you relied on uh, the various practices and traditions and ordinances of that particular denomination. And, you know, you just, you just show up and you, you, you pray this way and you count these beads this way and, and you go on this particular day and you do that thing. Folks, there's not enough Hail Marys in the world to make you spiritual. Some say you attempt spirituality through legalism. 
And it's a moral approach. You just live your life according to a certain code and you keep your nose clean and you keep your life clean. That's not going to make you spiritual either. And so here's the big question in your notes. Right at the top. How do we become spiritual in the eyes of God? In the eyes of God. Because it doesn't matter what you think, what I think, what Oprah thinks. It matters what God says. And James arrives at a conclusion in verse 10 of chapter 4. He says, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Should we end the sermon right there and just go home? Well, that's not how James rolls. It's not that simple. He's got more for us. Uh, He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, that's simple enough. I hear that. I go, okay, yeah, uh, James, I, 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 I hear you, buddy. <laughs> uh, humble yourself. He will exalt me. Great. How? How do I do that? You know? Uh, I mean, you've identified the problem. You've told me what the desired outcome is. How? It's kind of like when the mechanic looks at your car and says, you know, uh, that, ain't, that ain't running. Yeah, I got that. No, thank you. Thank you for that. How do we get it running? What do we do? Well, James from here, having given us the diagnosis, given us the desired outcome, now we're going to get into the how. And he's going to go through this by looking at some practical things. He's going to address some demographics in his own congregation. Demographics, we know what those are. Uh, We got some primaries coming up. And there's some political campaigns that are running right now, and they are obsessed with demographics. They're doing all this research on the various demographics. Well, there are demographics in our various churches as well, and there was in James's church. And in his community, the demographic of the poor resented the demographic of the wealthy. And so he addresses that, and he hears the poor slandering the wealthy. There is animosity between the have-nots and the haves, and so he's going to deal with the have-nots and their attitude toward the haves, and then he's going to turn around and he's going to deal with the haves and their arrogance and the way that they look down upon the poor, and he's going to deal with them both, and he's going to let them both have it, because if anybody has read the book of James, you know that this is an equal opportunity spiritual two-by-four to the face. That's what this book is. So we're all going to get it today. Just brace yourself, okay? And as you do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege of opening your word. Even when we get prickly stuff, even when we get uncomfortable stuff, God, we know that it comes from you. We know that it's good for us. And so I pray that we would come with open hearts, open eyes, and uh, just be malleable in your hands today. And we pray this in Jesus' name, that we might be spiritual. Amen. Amen. How do we become spiritual? First thing in your notes, number one, we've got to understand God's position. Understand God's position. To be spiritual, you've got to be humble. Humble yourselves, says James. A humble person understands they are under authority. You can't be humble unless you know there's someone above you. You answer to someone, and that is just reality. And James explains this reality by issuing a directive. We move on to verse 11 here. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Do not speak evil against one another. That's what you call a command. 
That's a directive right there. You are mandated to refrain from speaking evil. You, it's not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's a directive. How come? Because this book is God's word. God is the author. That, it's not just James. God spoke through James. And so this is authoritative. Now, when you're under authority, you're used to receiving commands. Anybody with a military background knows that. They're comfortable with that. They work well with that. Nobody likes to be told what to do, but that's part of being humble. That's part of being a good soldier. And in your notes, a little sub-point here, humility is submission to the authority of God's word. That's what humility is. You're under his authority. When James says, do not speak evil against one another, what's he talking about? He's talking about slander. Slander. Did you know that the Greek word for slander and the Greek word for devil is the same word? That's right. Diabolo. Diabolo. All right? Uh, what, is, uh, what is Spanish for devil? It's diablo. Diablo. It's compound Greek word, diabolo. Balo, second half of that means to throw. Like a ball. Like you're throwing a ball. Balo. All right? You put a dia in front of that, and it's to throw it through something. Like you're throwing a javelin or a spear. And your intent is you want to throw it right through that person. You want to take them out. You want to kill them. And when you slander people, diabolo, you are seeking to take them out. You're trying to put them down. You are stepping into the role. Satan wants to take you down by slandering. He is called a slanderer. And he wants to dismiss you. He wants to dispatch you. And when you slander people, you are stepping into the very role of the devil. You are assuming what he does. You are becoming executioner in, a, in, a, in one sense. Have you been wronged before? How many of you been wronged before? Somebody's wronged you. What are your options? Everybody's been wronged. Everybody's wronged and everybody's been wronged. What are your options when you've been wronged? When somebody's done you dirty? You got three. As far as the Bible is concerned, you got three options. You can talk to God about it. You can talk to the person who wronged you about it. Or number three, you could talk to someone who is in a position to do something about it or offer wisdom. Those are your options. And yet we, op we often pick option number four. Offer, option number four is when you, and by the way, God does not recognize option number four. That's when you go to somebody who has nothing to do with your situation. They can't do anything about the situation. They can't really offer you any wisdom. You're just going to them to dump on this other person and to throw them under the bus and to dish some dirt and you slander that person, you see. And that is a violation of God's word. It's what James characterizes on two occasions as murder. You have murdered someone in your heart and it is diabolical. You are serving as executioner. And James says, don't speak evil against one another. Here's what he says about the one who slanders. As we go on in verse 11, it says, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law. The law and judges the law, you see. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. A judge. Now, when I say that word judge, what a lot of people think about is, is the way that that term is used today in a negative sense. Whenever you take a stand on a moral issue, you might hear somebody come back at you and say, no, 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 don't judge lest you be judged, right? And they say, You're, who are you to judge, right? Just who do you think you are 
talking about that. That's not the context here. That's not what James is saying. He's saying you're judging the law. When you violate the law, you're making yourself a judge of the law. These people know what the law says, and they're choosing not to do it, you see. When you bear false witness, when you slander and you don't love your brother, you, you take what you know to be true because of what God's word says not to do, and you circumvent it, and you go around it, and you place yourself arrogantly above the Bible. That's what it means. You judge the law, and it's blatant disregard for the authority of God and his word. And in verse 12, it says, there's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and destroy, but who are you? Who are you to judge your neighbor? And he asks a very important question here. Who are you? In fact, if you've got your Bible open, I'd like you to underline those three words. Who are you? Who are you? That's an important question because of the disregard for the commands of scripture. And what we're saying when doing this is we're putting ourselves in a position that we don't belong in. So in your notes, to disobey God's word is to arrogantly put ourselves on his level. That's what we're doing right there. Uh, again, this isn't a command against you addressing sin. It's a command against slander, which is in violation. It is itself sin, you see. And so what's in the middle of the word sin? S. I, I is that middle letter. I, you are at the center. I am at the center when I sin. It's what I want. It's my law, you see. But there's only one lawgiver, James says, and that's God. And God wants obedience. He wants somebody who's after his heart. There's a guy in the Bible who's after the heart of God. He's, he's a man after God's own heart. What's his name? David, David, we need to be like David. How do we be like David? Well, there's a verse, uh, there's a passage, Psalm 40, that's really being spoken of, of the Messiah, but it relates directly to David. And it says in Psalm 46, in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, he's talking to God, but you have given me an open ear, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. God does not require certain things. What is he looking for? Is he looking for burnt animals? No, God's, God, David's saying, you're not interested in crispy critters. What you want is not so much the act of the sacrifice. What you want is the attitude that accompanies the sacrifice. You want what's in my heart as I'm coming to you. Now, today we don't perform burnt offerings or sacrifices by blood in that way anymore. But we offer sacrifices to the Lord. You may consider coming here in the rain. That's a sacrifice. We just lifted up the Lord in worship. That's a sacrifice of praise. You conduct other forms of spiritual sacrifice. They're all good. They're all appropriate. But what is God really interested? What are you going to be rewarded for one day? It's your motivation for doing those things. It's not going to be the acts themselves. Are those acts required by God? Well, yes, he's, he's given them to us as a vehicle, but he wants to know our heart condition as we offer those unto him. All right? He's looking for obedience. And in verse 7 of Psalm 40, it says, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me, says David. I delight to do your will. Oh, my God, your law is within my heart. He says, In your book, it is written of me. David did not read the Torah and say, yeah, that's good. That's nice. That's nice. That's, that's, that's poetic. Man, so-and-so really needs to hear that. 
Do we do that in church? Yeah, so you've already done it in your heart. You're thinking, man, slander. Yeah, so-and-so should be here for this. <laughs> right? You know, David opens the word. He says, this is a letter from God to me. He personalizes it. He says, God, what you desire is not my actions. You want me to listen. You want me to be soft and, and malleable in your hands. You want me to be obedient. God sees, excuse me, David sees a direct uh, a command in his life. And so many people read their Bible or they go to church and they get bored because they're not relating it to themselves. He says, behold, I've come to do your will. It's written of me in the scroll of your book. This is quoted verbatim in Hebrews 10 about Christ. It says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Man, I need a heart like this. I need a heart like David, like Christ. How does that happen? How does my heart get whittled into that shape? It's by the word of God. This is the tool that God uses. Are you in the word of God? Because he's gonna use it. If you've got the right perspective, you get to open it and God will use what's in there to whittle your heart into the shape that he desires. This is how you get, this is how you become like him. We open the Bible and we see Jesus and that is a picture of what you and I are intended by God to become by the word. You know, Christmas time, you parents are out there, you're doing your shopping, you're getting it, getting it accomplished hopefully by now or getting close and you're buying things for your kids and maybe they've given you some hints as to what they want for Christmas, you know, toys and things like that. My kids a few years ago asked me what my favorite toy was growing up. And I'm, I'm you know, I, I still like toys. I don't get to play with them anymore and that bums me out. But I, I, I do enjoy seeing what's out there. But of course, the toys of my generation were the best toys. And uh, I'm, I'm a child of the 80s, and so I had Star Wars and, and uh, G.I. Joe and, and Transformers and all that stuff. But I got to admit, greatest toy ever made, Legos. <laughs> Legos! The, the possibilities are endless, right? Really unlocks a kid's imagination. They're just, the, Legos are fantastic. Unless you're a parent that is barefoot <laughs> in the middle of the night. And you step on one of those little bricks, ouch, right? And then you want to cuss. Uh, but, you know, if you didn't know anything about Legos, you're a kid and you've never seen them, never heard about them, didn't know anything about them, you just go in the store and you find a box and on the front of that box is what this set is and you're like, wow. And it's like a spaceship or a castle or, or something. And you're like, oh, I, I got to have this. And so mom and dad buy it for you and you get it home and you open it up and you're like, what the heck, man? There's no spaceship in here. It's just a bunch of little plastic pieces. What's the deal? Well, it, it is in there. But you see, the picture on the front of the box represents the potential of the contents of the box. And the word of God shows us the potential of what we can become if we will surrender ourselves and let the master builder assemble appropriately in accordance with the manual and we can then become in the image of Christ Jesus but we got to we got to be put together the right way and so you got to you got to open that manual and so that is the attitude that we're to have that was David's attitude that should be our attitude so James addresses the poor and this is what he's conveying to them now secondly in your notes we not only need to understand God's position we got to understand our position. 
our position. So James has dealt with his slander on the part of the poor, and I'm sure, you know, as he's doing that, the rich people are going, yeah, you tell him, James, let him have it. And he's like, you rich people, sit down and be quiet. I'm going to get to you. And he's about to do that. And in verse 13, he says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And maybe this verse is starting to make you a little uncomfortable. It does me, I got to tell you, who's he addressing? The wealthy. What is he starting to address? Their intent to do what? To go and to make more money. And I see that and, you know, there's a part of me, even though I don't have as much money as a lot of other people, there's a part of me because politically I tend to be more conservative. I am, I am, you know, I, I, I think capitalism's all right. I, I, I affirm the entrepreneurial spirit and I, I, I read these words and I think to myself, you know, if, if some woke TV show started a speech like this, I might start to fidget a little bit. Oh, where's this going? They're going to guilt trip the upper class now. But look what he's about to say. Is James slamming success here? Is he saying it's wrong to plan for success or to try to be successful financially? Is that what he's saying? No, I think it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. Nothing wrong with planning wisely with your finances. That's not his issue. There's something about the statement that someone would make that we are going into such and such town and we will do this. And we will turn a profit. Here's the takeaway in your notes. Don't be presumptuous. Don't be presumptuous about human accomplishment. Let us go and we will make a profit. There's a presumption there. You're assuming something. And you know what? That's what money does. It creates an illusion that you are undefeatable. There's going to be continued prosperity. You know, uh, let's say you've made money. Does that give you a right to to assume that you're going to continue to make money? That everything's just going to keep rolling in for you? No, you don't know that. You know, some of the wealthiest people in the world were on the Titanic. John Jacob Astor, Isidore Strauss. I mean, some of the richest people ever who ever lived went down. They're down at the bottom of the Atlantic right now. Money creates an illusion. That's why in 1 Timothy 6, it says, As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Paul says, if you're fixed on money, you become conceited, and you pin your hopes on the wrong thing. Money creates an illusion. Success creates an illusion. You know, Jesus doesn't throw the word fool around very often. But there's a parable in Luke 12, uh, in verse 19, it starts, he's talking about a rich man who says to his own soul, he says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? Whose will they be? We don't know what the future holds. And nothing we have accomplished allows us to know what the future holds. And we got to do something in your notes. We've got to recognize we are temporary and fragile. Temporary and fragile. James goes on in verse 14. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You know, don't, don't get too cocksure of yourself, he says. What is your life? For you are a mist 
You are a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. By the way, you know that question he asked in verse 12? I had you underline the words, who are you? This is the answer to that question. You're a mist. You're a mist. The Greek word is atmis. Atmis. It means vapor. Some of your versions say vapor. You're just a, a breath. You're, just, you're here one minute, you're gone the next. And the most annoying thing to me when we were wearing face masks, some of us still are, that's all right, but uh, during the pandemic when we were all required to, you know, the most annoying thing to me was when I had to wear my glasses. You're, you know, you can relate, right? Fogged them all up. Now, not, not forever. They would fog up and then they, it would go away until you breathed again. I guess all I need to do is just stop breathing and they wouldn't fog up, you know. I grew up in South Dakota, very, very cold in South Dakota in the winter. When you guys are getting chilly, you know, uh, over the next few months, uh, that's wussy talk right there. South Dakota, sun. I mean, sub-zero temperatures. And uh, you could see your breath every day. Uh, when I was in grade school for recess, we used to go out there and pretend we were smoking cigarettes. You know, <laughs> my dad was a pastor. What kind of kid did he raise? But your breath, you could see it and then it'll be gone. It'll be gone. That's life. That's your life. That's my life. James says that's what it's like. It's this scant thing. Uh, I have, as a pastor, been at more than a few deathbed scenes. I have gone to pray over people, you know, and I'm reminded in those instances that life is a vapor. And you watch someone, and, and physically, we go out that way. We go out like a vapor, you know? When you're on your deathbed, you got those tubes coming out of you, and you're lying there, and everything's shutting down, and the last thing that people experience before they depart this mortal plane is that long stare at the ceiling. And that's all it is. And, and you just think about all the things that you accumulated as you breathe in and out, you see. And everything that you've done, the fleeting nature of life, all of your accomplishments, all of your trophies, all of your accolades, all of your material possessions are all back at the house. They're not going to help you in that hospital room. And it's all coming down. And when you take that last breath, that's it. That's it. And from there... They take that shell that was once your body and they crack you open, take all the fluids out, put the formaldehyde in, they put you in the ground. All your greatness is going to pass away. All your stuff, in fact, while you're laying there, it's being divided up even then. You know, your kids are going to get the house. They're going to rent it out to some college students who are going to tear it up. They're going to paint it all kinds of weird colors. It's going to get rented several more times. Maybe eventually eminent domain will take it. And at some point, there won't be any evidence that you were ever there at all. Have a nice day. <laughs> Pastor Scott, you're bumming me out. Folks, we got to deal with this. We got to come to grips with this. Now, there, there's, for the Christian, there's something much greater awaiting. Amen. And what you do in life does matter for eternity in terms of of your recognition before the throne. Salvation is a gift, but there are eternal rewards based on how you live. But none of it is going to be temporary that matters. And so 
Here's what we should say according to James. In verse 15 he says, instead you ought to say if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. That's a contrast to what we've already said. We said that we're what? We're temporary and fragile. We, because of that fact, we need to rely on one who in your notes is eternal and sovereign. You're temporary and fragile. You're, you're wussy and weakly. God is eternal and sovereign. He's the opposite of us. If the Lord wills, I got a papaw, that's what I call him. He lives in Pineville, Missouri, Troy Douglas Henson. He is 93. I hope I live, my, my wife has a grandma, Grandma Mary, just saw her on uh, Friday, I believe. She's 100. I'd like to live to be 100, and I will, God willing, or I might get hit by a turnip truck. I mean, we don't know. We're not in charge of that. Uh, but this is a mindset of humility that James is encouraging us toward. Did you know in Victorian England back in that day, uh, you, it was considered rude if you sent a letter to someone and after your name you did not sign two letters, the letters DV, DV. You'd write your name, Scott Grimm, and then the letters DV. It stood for Latin words, Dio Valente, God willing. God willing. In Victoria, England, it was considered rude and arrogant to not put DV after your name because that implied that you didn't really think it was up to the Lord, that you were in control of your own destiny. Paul understands this Dio Valente concept. In 1 Corinthians 4.19, he says, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. In Acts 18, he tells the Ephesians, he says, I will return to you if God wills. Paul was a Dio Valente guy. Are you a Dio Valente guy or girl? So dream, inspire, invest, but remember, Dio Valente. It's all dependent on what the Lord wants. That's humility. That's a mindset you need to become a spiritual person. James continues in verse 16. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So in your notes, you've got to resolve to walk humbly in righteousness. You walk in righteousness. James is saying that when you boast of all your plans and all your dreams and all your ambitions, that boasting is considered by God to be evil. Boasting is evil. Right now, you may be thinking of somebody who's boastful. Some of, some of you, a few years ago, I preached this, and I had people tell me, see, that's why I'm not going to vote for Donald Trump. He's a boastful guy. Uh, well, you may be right, but let me just submit this. If you're hearing this message today and all you can think about is Trump, I think you missed it. <laughs> I think you missed it. What did David say? In your book, it is written of... Trump, uh, in your book, it is written of me. We got to put the microscope on ourselves here. We've got to personalize this. Who needs this? I do. I do. One of my favorite movies is Top Gun. I love that scene in the very beginning. Uh, Maverick Mitchell, hotshot pilot, he you know, takes risks and all this stuff. He buzzes the tower and he gets in trouble. He gets hauled before his commanding officer. There's this tough-as-nails, bald you know, skin flint uh, commanding officer, and he gets in Maverick's face. He's like, son, your ego's writing checks. Your body can't cash. That's, that's James. 
I can feel the spittle from James hit me in the face. He's like that bald, tough CO, you know? You're just, you're just, son, your arrogance, your boldness is writing a check you can't cash. Are you hearing me, Atmis? Vapor? Misty boy? You're not all that. We need to humble ourselves because if we don't humble ourselves, who's going to do it for us? He's going to do it for us. I think of King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember? Uh, what did we read? In Daniel, he starts to boast. He says, look at all that I've done. Look at my kingdom. Look at my glory. What did God do? Took his mind. He went insane. He went down on all fours. He ate grass like an ox. His fingernails grew long. His hair grew long. He lived like a beast for seven years. God gave him his mind back, and he was humbled. What did he do? He gave glory to God. He gave glory to God. James says in verse 17, then... He says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. For him it is sin. Some look at that verse, and you know what people come away with that, come away from that verse with? They say, well, what this means is that it's only sin if you know it's sin. That's not what that says. That's not what that means. What James is saying here, here's the context. The people he's addressing, they know. They know what God's word says. They know the Old Testament, don't slander, says it in the law over and over and over, and they have circumvented it. They, they are refusing to abide by what God has said in his word. That's their problem. They're hearers of the word, but they're not doers. That's worse. That's worse. And they need to humble themselves. How do you humble yourself? This is what true spirituality is. is. Every morning you get up and you, you pray, and you say, God, Thank you for giving me another day. Thank you for putting breath in my lungs. Thank you for putting blood in my heart, in my body. God, thank you for, for another opportunity to glorify you. God, I am weak. I, I am fragile. I am flawed. I need your help today. Would you work through me? Would you empower me by your power, not mine, to do things that bring glory to you, not me? That is spirituality. That is humility. And what does God do for the person who humbles himself? James says, he exalts him. He exalts him. That's true spirituality. It's not intellectual. It's not emotional. It's not ritual. It's not legalism. My flesh is not afraid of any of that stuff. I could do that stuff. I could jump through all the hoops. I could check all the boxes. My flesh is not afraid of that. My flesh is afraid of a cross. I have to die to self every day. My flesh doesn't want to do that. It's, it, you have to drag it, kick it, and scream. And ah, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. But this is a picture that we see in Scripture. It's pictured so beautifully, obviously in Christ, but it's pictured so beautifully in the life of David. David... Let me tell you, in 2 Kings, there was, excuse me, in 2 Samuel, we read about an object that was actually crafted during the wilderness wandering. God mandated, it's called the Ark of the Covenant. It was an acacia box. It was overlaid with gold. It had two beautiful cherubim on top of that lid, and it represented the presence and the power and the glory of God. And the Shekinah glory dwelt over that box. 
And they carried it through the wilderness. And when they brought it into the land of Canaan, the promised land, it ended up in the tabernacle. And it sat there for years. And it was over, under the oversight of the high priest, who for years was this lazy, corrupt, fat guy named Eli. And Eli had two sons who were good for nothing. And their names were Hophni and Phinehas. And they were corrupt like their father. And God judged them. He disciplined them by allowing the Philistines to come in. And they took the Ark of the Covenant into battle. And normally when they would take the Ark into battle, they would be victorious. But God did not allow them to be victorious because they were an offense to him. And so the Philistines conquered them. And Hophni and Phinehas lost their life. And the Philistines took the Ark into Philistia. And those two sons of the priests died. And one of them had a wife that upon hearing the news, she gave birth. She had a child, and she died in childbirth. And the name of that child was Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. And the people then clamored for a king because, you know, the Philistines have a king, and the Amalekites have a king, and all these pagan nations around us have kings. We want a king. And God said, Samuel, give them a king. And he gave them the king they deserved. Does that ever happen? We ever clamor for something, and we, God says, okay, and he gives you what you deserve. The king they deserved was a guy named Saul. And Saul was not consumed with the glory of God. He was consumed with his own legacy. And he ruled for decades, long, long time. And during the entire reign of Saul, he never once purposed to go and get God's ark from the Philistines. They didn't even want it anymore. The Philistines turned it over because God had plagued them with disease because of what they had done, taking his box. And so they gave it up, and it ended up back in the land of Judah, not in the tabernacle, not in the king's palace, but it ended up down near Bethlehem, a little place called Kiriath-Yerim, and it collected dust all throughout the reign of King Saul. And when David became king, everything changed. You know what the first thing that happened was when David became king? It wasn't a party. It wasn't a coronation. It wasn't to honor him as the new ruler. The first thing David did was go down to Bethlehem, get that ark, blow the dust off of that thing, and lead a procession all the way up to Jerusalem so that he could install that ark where it belonged. He could restore God to his place of rightful worship. And so he refused. He did not allow people to honor him as king. He was not taking part in that procession in royal garb. He was not sitting atop some majestic steed. He was not riding in some uh, gold-adorned litter carried on poles by manservants. No, he was walking along in a priestly garment, an ephod, which is basically a nightshirt that the priest would wear and he was barefoot and he was dancing and he was leaping and he was jumping for joy. He was behaving in an undignified way because he was so overjoyed and so engaged and immersed in the worship of the only true God. And his wife, the daughter of the former King Saul, she looked at him and she despised him and she thought how undignified. And David said, Madam, I have only begun to undignify myself. You ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> Undignified. You know, it's Christmas time. You're probably going to hear the strains of Handel's Messiah this month at some point. What's the most famous portion of Handel's Messiah? The Hallelujah Chorus. What do we do when we hear the Hallelujah Chorus? 
we all stand, don't we? Da-da-da-da, hallelujah, hallelujah. And we all stand. You know why we do that? It started, it started in 1742 at the first performance of Handel's Messiah, King George II, at the London premiere. He was in attendance, and he was so moved at the, Handel's, at the Hallelujah Chorus that he stood. Folks, kings don't stand for others. Others stand for them. But he recognized something. He was a mortal king. And they were honoring an immortal king. And so he stood to indicate his active worship. And so you don't sit when the true king is being honored. Now, by contrast, there was another king in world history. King Louis XIV of France. He reigned for 72 years. He had a nickname that he gave himself, Louis the Great, the Sun King. He famously said, I am the state. He thought so highly of himself that he would cut his fingernails and his toenails and we have them encrusted with diamonds and give them as gifts. I'm thinking of doing that with my staff. And this pompous king reigned for 72 years, and he died in 1715. But before he died, he gave very specific instructions regarding his funeral. He was to be laid in a solid gold casket with only his face exposed. And in that vast cathedral, the only light that there was to be was a solitary candle placed, illuminating the face of the Sun King. And on the day of that funeral, everything was conducted as prescribed. And then the bishop, Jean Baptiste uh, Massalon, he came down, and before he uttered one single word, he walked over and he bent down to that candle. <laughs> and he blew it out. And then he addressed the darkened room and he said, Only God is great. That's our starting point. You want to be spiritual? You honor the Lord with your life. You bring yourself low. You bow before him. You take stands on in his name. It's not about you. Your accomplishments must be done with the right motivation. It's not to bring glory to self. It's not to be seen. You humble yourself that God may exalt us because true spirituality isn't accomplished by how you feel, what you know, or what rules you follow. It comes by dying to self, embracing the grace of Jesus Christ, and submitting to his word. And that's modeled by David, and it's modeled by Christ. And now we get to model it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for the prickly word of James. Thank you for this broccoli that we have consumed today, oh God. It's for our benefit. There's a design and an image that we are to assume, and God, uh, we can even go about accomplishing that in the wrong way, and so we submit to your hand, God. May we be like clay in the hands of the potter. And as you mold us, sometimes there's pain, sometimes there's unflexibility, but God, 
it's all worthwhile if we end up looking like Jesus and bringing glory to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.